I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. 18 years. It may not be as big a war, but America's war in Afghanistan is now our longest lasting war. How is it going? What was Trump trying to do with his recent alleged invitation to peace negotiations with the Taliban at Camp David? 18 years later, what is this war about at this point? What is America's goal? Or for that matter, is there a goal? Our guest today, retired U.S. Army officer Denny Searson, writes in a new essay, The Afghan War Now Has a Preposterous Inertia All Its Own. Boy, that says quite a bit. Denny Searson, thanks so much for being with us yet again on Keeping Democracy Alive. Oh, thanks, Bert. Always glad to do it. Danny Searson is a retired U.S. Army officer and a regular contributor to Antiwar.com. His work has appeared in the L.A. Times, The Nation, Huffington Post, The Hill, Salon, Truth Dig, Tom Dispatch, among other publications. He served combat tours with reconnaissance units in Iraq and Afghanistan, and after that taught history at his alma mater, West Point. He's the author of a memoir and critical analysis of the Iraq War, Ghostwriters of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. His new article is titled, Profiles in Absurdity, Remembering the Terror Wars, subtitle, The Gated Communities of Afghanistan, an All-American Euphemism. That's such an interesting title. Now, why do you say remembering the terror wars? You know, this is the second piece in, uh, in what's going to be an ongoing series. You know, I haven't decided. It's the second one. I haven't decided if it will be weekly at anti-war. Um, it also gets picked up by Truth Dig usually a day later, or it'll be bi-weekly. But, you know, I wrote the book on Iraq um, accidentally, sort of, and I think I've described that on the show. It started out as an angry essay. Well, I haven't been able to write about Afghanistan from a personal perspective very much. Occasionally there's been some vignettes in my policy articles, but I've generally stayed firm to, you know, facts, analysis, evidence and kept my own personal story out. And that's largely because I carry a lot of emotional wound and I just wasn't in a place um, mentally where I was able to do it. Well, it's been eight years now, um, and it's been 18 years since we started the war, and so I've decided, decided to start telling some stories. And in the vein of Catch-22, I realized the best stories I can tell are not the stories of brotherhood and heroism. I've got those stories, but you've heard them, right? Yeah, the listeners yeah. have heard them. Uh, my stories are the slew, the litany, really, of absurd tales, uh, whether they be about my uh, commanders or the generals in charge of the war or just the nature of the war uh, in general. And so that's why I say remembering, because it's my personal remembrance. Uh-huh. Uh, but the terror wars are, I don't know, I guess still sort of going on. I mean, they're not entirely over yet. 
But we will get into that as we go along and the subtitle, The Gated Communities of Afghanistan, an all-American euphemism. Well, starting at the beginning, the war in Afghanistan was, at the time, different from Vietnam for the service people engaged there in that we knew what we were fighting for. The bad guys who attacked America on September 11, 2001, were given haven by the Taliban government, which was then in place in Afghanistan. That appeared to be a just cause. I mean, September 11th. Hmm. In Vietnam, as I understand it, the Americans uh, there in an unfamiliar, exceedingly difficult terrain. And from the start, except for some vague picture of a worldwide communist threat, I don't know how many people really knew what we were fighting for. Of course, the Vietnamese, the people that we were fighting, were highly inspired to fight. What is the status now, do you think, of the motivation of the various fighting forces in Afghanistan? Well, clearly, they're more motivated and feel more empowered, I would argue, than at any point since they fell, you know, between October and December 2001 when they fell from power. Um, The evidence is with me, empirically. The Taliban now contests or controls a larger percentage of Afghan districts than at any time since this war began. Uh, They um, have more legitimacy in those areas. The Kabul-based regime, which is known for its corruption and being broke, uh, is not popular in large swaths of the country. And now the Taliban is effectively reaching its tentacles in terms of bombings usually, deep into the center of Kabul, an area that was once, at one time, nearly untouchable. It was really the one safe haven. So the Taliban has shown its ability to reach out and touch Afghan security forces or Americans just about anywhere. And we saw this in the latest suicide car bombing that led, ostensibly, Trump to back out of the police, the peace deal. But we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, look, the Taliban has all the high cards. They had them throughout the negotiations, and what they're doing, and you brought up Vietnam, their strategy is very similar to what the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong called, quote, uh, talk and fight. And the Taliban is maintaining the same strategy. They will talk with us, but they are going to fight at the same time. They're not going to do a ceasefire until they absolutely think they've got as much leverage as possible. And they're going to continue to create facts on the ground that give them a better position in terms of negotiations. And facts on the ground are military victories. I mean, that's, you know, every uh, ending of a war uh, has come through at least publicly perceived military victories, such as Gettysburg, when, you know, Lincoln finally had something he could uh, speak, uh, say that, yeah, we got it, we won. And I'm sure every side uh, needs some victories to have that as a negotiating position from, uh, you know, a place to start from. And it's often said that generals fight the last war. What that means is at the beginning, for example, of the First World War, the Allies used millions of horses. They went in relying on the standards of the American Civil War and the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. Of course, that meant millions of dead horses. Uh, Horses were not a great weapon for the First World War. In Iraq... We were able to topple the government and maintain some degree of military control over the region. Some degree. Not so in Afghanistan. As with Vietnam, there's a government of sorts, as you said, in the capital. Uh, But uh, there is a theoretical government. Ashraf Ghani is 
the head of government is the president, but uh, I'm guessing outside of Kabul, he's not really, he's probably sort of a joke, I imagine. And you say Obama's attempt to replicate what was seen as a successful surge in Iraq, replicate that in Afghanistan, did not work. You say the two theaters of conflict are utterly dissimilar. What do you mean by that, Denny? Well, you mentioned how generals are known to allegedly fight the last war. So let's just trace that only in the modern sense. Uh, One could argue that the Iraq invasion was an attempt to replicate the Persian Gulf War of 1991, right? right, Shock, awe, defeat the Iraqi army. The problem is uh, in the Persian Gulf War, we didn't occupy the country, and therefore we didn't have to fight a counterinsurgency through nation building. So we kind of miscalculated there. Well, there's a myth, right? It's the subtitle of my book, The Myth That the Surge in Iraq, we're talking 2007 to 2009, was a success. And Obama and his generals, who, who realistically were the ones that kind of forced his hand, along with the uh, hawkish Secretary of State Clinton, to double down, uh, triple down, actually, U.S. forces. In that sense, he actually outdid Bush, right? Because he actually tripled the number of soldiers in Afghanistan. And he did surge 2.0, the Obama surge into Afghanistan. And he was fighting the last war in his generals. And as I mentioned in the article, my colonels were fighting the surge in Iraq. Well, here's the problem. Um, Afghanistan is landlocked. It is larger. Uh, it is more mountainous. It has a larger population. It is extremely rural. A very, very tiny percentage of its population, unlike in Iraq, lives in the cities. And so it is much harder for 100,000 American soldiers, which is what we maxed out at in Afghanistan, to achieve uh, anything close to what 160,000 American soldiers achieved in a much more urban, much smaller country. So what we found was the American army tries to do what it did in Iraq, which I would argue failed, and we can get into that. But they replicated it on that false assumption that it was successful, and they started trying to wall off villages, just like they walled off you know, sectarian neighborhoods in Baghdad. They thought if we just put American soldiers in as many villages as possible, that will stop the Taliban. You know, we'll, we'll go out, we'll live among the people just like we did in Baghdad. And, and what we found was American resources, A, were utterly uh, limited and not up to the task, and B, what we were facing was a much less modern society with much less infrastructure that needed much more help in nation-building. And the reality was, we faced a population in the south and east of Afghanistan, the Pashtun-dominated Taliban popular areas, that really had no interest in going along with America's goals. So what we lacked in those areas, the most contested areas, was a partner on the ground among the natives, among the indigenous folks of Afghanistan. And so I would argue Obama's surge is a greater failure than the Bush surge, which was also a failure. Oh, you know, interesting how history, uh, it, it comes from all different points of view, and those people who know it best, I would think, such as you, might not recognize the uh, official sort of mythic history that uh, is, is put out there that so many people believe, the conventional wisdom, as it were. But speaking of conventional wisdom, in what ways was Iraq not a win? What ways was it a win? Let's just look at that somewhat briefly. So I arrived in Iraq in October of 2006 when Baghdad was both literally and figuratively aflame. Uh, It was the height of the sectarian civil war, which went uh, throughout most of the middle of uh, Iraq, which is the uh, mixed or previously mixed 
Sunni and Shia areas. Baghdad was, of course, the heartbeat of that civil war. I was in Baghdad at that time. And what we found was that the amount of American soldiers on the ground, as well as the strategies that we were partaking, were not up to the task that was put before us. So Bush decides, against the congressional you know, advice, because the Democrats had just won the House and the Senate, against what the people of the United States had said they wanted in poll after poll, he says 30,000 more soldiers and a new intellectual media-savvy general named David Petraeus can turn this thing around. So he goes against all advice, including from his own generals who were in charge at the time, and he doubles down. So what happens is we put 30,000 more soldiers into Iraq, and we think that's going to turn the tide. Well, violence does decrease after about six to seven months in 2007. Now, of course, 947, I believe, Americans uh, were killed in 2007, which was the bloodiest year, and those six to seven months were the bloodiest months. So there was a lot of sacrifice involved in this. Now, violence goes down, Petraea says, because I've got this new counterinsurgency strategy and because I'm a great general and because I've got 30,000 extra American boots on the ground. I would argue, and most true scholars of the Iraq surge, most accredited experts, will say there's actually three reasons that violence goes down, none of which set the stage for long-term success. So number one, most of the civil war had already unfolded, meaning the ethnic cleansing of neighborhoods in Baghdad had already been achieved mm. so that no longer were these neighborhoods mixed. And I saw that firsthand. Areas that were once mixed, like the neighborhood that I was in at one time, were now homogenous Sunni or Shia. Oh, wow. Okay, that's the first one. So a lot of the work of the bloody work of the civil war was over. Okay? Oh, the second was, Muqtada al-Sadr, the leader of a Shia militia, takes the tactical step of, or strategic, one could argue, of calling a ceasefire with American soldiers. Now, his reason for that was not because there was 30,000 Americans additionally on the ground. His reason was he wanted to reorganize his militia, gain control over what had become kind of an out-of-control criminal element, and create a political party that could contest Iraqi elections, a populist Shia urban party. And the third, and I think the most important, is Petraeus, not so secretly, pays off former Sunni insurgents, many of whom had American blood on their hands, gives them guns, gives them money, and gets them to turn sides against the al-Qaeda organization in western Iraq. Now, that sounded like a brilliant idea, but the problem was all it did was buy us a temporary drop in violence in western Baghdad and western Iraq, and the reality was that as soon as the Shia government stopped paying as soon as Americans weren't backing them anymore. Almost all of those, what they called sons of Iraq, quote-unquote, eventually join ISIS. So we get a short-term drop in violence, just enough for us to declare victory, maintain the myth that the surge worked, and final point, remember what they said the point of the surge was. They said the point of the surge was not to temporarily stop violence. The point of the surge was to create a drop in violence that created the space politically for a political reconciliation between the Sunni, the Shia, and the Kurdish entities in the Iraqi government. That never transpired, and Petraeus never said a word about that in his congressional testimony because he knew it had failed, and so he changed the narrative to be, look at my statistics, violence went down, I'm a great general, we won. And everyone bought it, including, seemingly, Senator Obama, who later became president. Uh, And Obama tried to replicate that 
allegedly successful surge in 2008 uh, and 2007-2009. Tell us about, you know, Obama's surge in uh, Afghanistan. A lot of people were surprised at that. I mean, nobody really knew who this Senator Obama was in terms of uh, liberal or his, his uh, you know, warishness. How, how did that go when he tried to uh, uh, replicate what you call surge 1.0? I, and I think a lot of anti-war, anti-Iraq war, because that was kind of the war of the moment. Afghanistan had been forgotten in 2006 yeah, right. and seven. You know, I fell for the Obama hope change rhetoric. And I, I, I voted believe, for like, this was going to be my guy. Yeah. And he is going to get us out of Iraq. And that's all I cared about. And so me, along with a lot of other people, we ignored this other caveat that he always threw in when he was a candidate, which is, I'm not against all wars. I'm against dumb wars. Afghanistan, by contrast with Iraq, is, quote, the good war, okay, which is a very, very, very important point. And, and I sort of ignored that, right, to my own detriment, and I think that no. the, you know, the, the liberals generally did that. And so we shouldn't have been so surprised when he triples ground forces in Afghanistan and tries to replicate what happened in Iraq. And so what does he do? He puts General Stanley McChrystal in charge, who was a Petraeus protege in charge of the special operations forces that had decimated al-Qaeda in Iraq, killed Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, right, the al-Qaeda in Iraq bloodthirsty leader. And, and then when McChrystal makes some, you know, off-putting statements to Rolling Stone, not only does he, you know, he, he fires him, but he puts Petraeus back in charge. He actually demotes Petraeus from commander of the entire Middle East to commander of just the Afghan war. And tries to use literally the same formula led by the same guys, because Petraeus takes all his lackeys, all his staff officers, into Afghanistan, and they utterly fail. They get a tiny, tiny short-term drop in violence, again at the expense of thousands of Afghan deaths and hundreds more American deaths than, than had ever been seen before in Afghanistan, which had usually been a pretty low casualty war until then. And the reality was, within the 18-month window that he said his temporary surge was going to last, because yeah. he said it was temporary because that's how he bought off the liberals or how he brought off the progressives. Right. He said, yes, I'm going to do a surge, but it's only temporary, unlike Bush's. And the reality is, within 18 months, most of the ground that had been taken from the Taliban was really back in their hands. And as soon as the Americans pulled even small amounts of troops away, the reality was the Taliban came right back in. And again, the purported reason for the surge this time was to increase the viability and the legitimacy of the Afghan government. And by the time the surge was over, the Afghan government was as corrupt, hmm. broke, and illegitimate as ever before. So history almost repeated itself. Gosh, really? Sounds a little Vietnamish, I must say. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army officer Danny Searson, who's written uh, the books on the subject, and his new article is titled Profiles in Absurdity, Remembering the Terror Wars, the Gated Communities of Afghanistan, and All-American Euphemism. And you were an officer. You had direct knowledge of success or failure of the action on the ground. And obviously, politics does matter. You write, you know, in terms of winning the hearts and minds, which is, by the way, a great movie for those who haven't seen it. You write, I was a tool, a pawn, a middle managing company man, expected to carry out Surge 2.0 with discipline and enthusiasm. Uh, Danny, how did that go? Well, it was an utter failure, as mentioned. Um, my little 
unit, about 100 to 120 cavalry scouts, in one of the more contested districts of Kandahar province, which was arguably the most contested province. We were right in the heartland of the Taliban. Mullah Muhammad Omar, the former Taliban leader, his village was like five miles from where I was working. So, you know, this was the Taliban heartland. If it could work here, it could work anywhere. And if it couldn't work here, it probably wasn't going to work in the rest of southern Afghanistan. What we did and the limited, limited, limited short-term success we had was a microcosm of the whole surge. So what did I do? Well, uh, I knew that I couldn't live in the current situation was that my little Alamo sandbag outpost was being attacked several times a day. Oh, we were basically under siege by the Taliban. We had no legitimacy and no footprint in the villages surrounding us. We could, we could barely make it out the gate on a, on a patrol without facing an ambush. I mean, there were times that I dove into a ditch as I stepped out of the gate of my patrol base. Okay, so the, we, we, we controlled nothing except oh. literally the ground we stood on. Jeez. Well... Um, the special forces had been piloting this program uh, in other parts of Afghanistan where they would essentially, because the Afghan army and the Afghan police were so corrupt, so, so seen as illegitimate in the South because they mostly come from minority communities in the North, that we decided to bypass them and create a local militia called the Afghan local police. Huh. Now, I knew this was a long-term you know, plan for failure because it would have the exact opposite effect of creating legitimacy for the centralized Iraqi government or Afghan government in Kabul because we're forming another militia, which should be the opposite of our long-term goal. But I also was selfish and wanted to protect uh, my troops who were facing casualties that are at a really high rate by that point. So I was the first conventional unit in Kandahar, Afghanistan, to raise an Afghan local police militia, which was really uh, empowering a warlord from a certain tribe. Uh Um him getting his uh, cronies and relatives from that same tribe. Uh, we armed them, and we gave them uh, old-fashioned-looking Desert Storm area American uniforms, and we set them in little outposts in the villages surrounding our post. Well, it worked in the sense that my base got attacked less and my casualties went down because I was able to kind of uh, put a buffer between myself and Taliban attack. Now, we still only controlled about 500 meters in any direction of my base, but we considered that a very big victory Sure. Uh, to show you how crazy things were then. And, and the threshold, the bar was so low. Well, what's crazy about this is I never believed it would work in the long-term sense. I was just trying to get out of Dodge with as many of my scouts <laughs> as I could. I wanted to write as few letters home as possible. Oh my. Uh, I was not a believer in what I was doing. But suddenly, I became a celebrity within uh, the division. Okay, we're talking about a two-star general. I was visited by five generals in two months who wanted to see what one general called my program, which was the Laboratory for Success in Afghanistan. That's what he called it. This was a a one-star general. Uh, I was visited by uh, one-star, two-star, and three-star generals. and Everyone wanted to come see my successful program. Well, what really happened? We propped up one, uh, well, not only a militia, but one tribe over the other, uh-huh. which became venal and abused other tribes, um, stole money, uh, essentially kicked back money to the Taliban and made like secret truces with them, agreements to just not attack each other until the Americans left. I mean, the reality was, yes, my statistics dropped, but the legitimacy of the Afghan government only further decreased, and in a, a strange sense, I was actually funding the Taliban through the work programs that I was funding and the pay that I was funneling through one individual, Uh okay, who uh then paid his people, a guy named Haji Ramatullah, who 
uh, was essentially a new warlord from a specific tribe. So it was an utter failure. And the, just to show you how similar it was to the Iraq surge, everyone from my lieutenant colonel up to the three-star general in charge of southern Afghanistan praised what we were doing mm-hmm. and said that it was the future of Afghanistan. Visit Afghanistan, visit Pashmul, visit Kandahar, where I was, and what you're going to see is Taliban Times Square because we no longer control any of that area. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely amazing. And, and you know, we just don't... There's, my sense is, from what little reading I've done about that region of the world, is that there are tribes. You know, it's not so much uh, nations as, as we see it, you know, the country, the big country, but there are tribes. There are warlords. And, I we you know, the whole the former Ottoman Empire, that's continuing to this day, I think. And you just... If we don't get that, I mean, I don't know, even if we get it, I don't know how we can possibly develop anything like a win. I mean, there's the Afghan army, the militia, the police. If they don't have legitimacy, uh, they, there's just I just don't see how we can have anything like a win. One thing, switching a little bit, one thing everyone knows about President Donald Trump is his rather bizarre obsession with a wall. A wall. You write that my squadron commander never saw a problem a section of wall couldn't solve. So tell us about that. In what specific ways was it impractical? How would it affect the villagers you were allegedly serving? So context always matters. Yes. And backstory always matters. Please fill us in. So... My brigade commander, and uh, and I purposely choose not to use names. Uh, by the way, th- th- this gentleman is a general now. He's considered a rising star in the army. So keep that in mind because it lets you know what the what the army sees as success and uh-huh. what the army positively reinforces. Well, when he was a battalion commander, okay, uh, one rank below, okay, so in charge of five hundred instead of five thousand soldiers, he served in West Baghdad. When I was in Baghdad too during the surge, the first surge, and. He was an enthusiastic proponent, uh, probably because Petraeus was, and it's a good idea to do what your boss likes if you want to get promoted. He was an enthusiastic proponent of walling off entire neighborhoods with concrete barriers, separating uh, different sectarian neighborhoods from each other, and then controlling the access points uh, in what really was a bizarre sort of, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic sort of uh, concentration camp scenario. It was very, very, it was, it was incredibly strange, but, you know, it was believed that this would tamper down violence, and in the short term, of course, it did. Um, but it also gave the people the sense that they lived under an utter police state and a foreign occupation. Well, <laughs> he got his statistics, this brigade commander, sure. of lowered violence, and he said, why don't we have Danny, since he's, you know, piloting this Afghan local police warlord program, what they would call the local police, but what I like to call the militia, um, we should take the villages close to his base and wall them off with concrete, right? Big 10-foot T-walls, concrete barriers in a 360-degree in a circle, one or two access points controlled by joint patrols of Americans and uh, local policemen, right? And that will stop the Taliban from getting in. And, and, and the thing is, this is another example of an American colonel, an American leader, looking at Afghanistan but seeing Iraq, okay? These are not highly intellectual people. These are not creative thinkers. Okay, these are people who base everything on experience. The Army is an extraordinarily experiential, earthy sort of organization where, where, where experience is valued, whereas intellect, creativity, and nuance is not. 
So I pointed out to my colonel, who was the conduit, I said, sir, there are some problems with this, and let me just tell you a few. First, we'll do the more, you know, reasonable ones. Um, we're going to divide this tiny village's farmers who make their living solely through agriculture from their fields, thus their livelihoods. I said, sir, even if we allow them access to their fields through certain access points, we are going to cut off literally all of their canals. And since irrigation is done in essentially a 13th century method in mm. rural Afghanistan, wow. uh, if you cut off their irrigation canals, you essentially dry out the village of their, of their uh, drinking water and also of their irrigation, which destroys their fields. So this is not doable. I also got sarcastic because I was pretty flippant by this point in my career, and I said, you know, the <laughs> Taliban can climb also, sir. Um, and There are ladders. Yeah. The Taliban, and the Taliban also lives in the village. That was my point. Uh -huh. I said the Taliban already lives in the village. They don't wear uniforms. They don't have big T's on their head. They're already there. So walling them off is just going to wall them in and allow them access in and out. And they're also related. So if they're not in the village, they're related to people in the village. Uh -huh. I said, so this is not a method for success. What we have to do is convince the people that the Kabul-based regime is legitimate, although I believe that was impossible. We have to convince them that we are there for their good, which I also thought was impossible. But that was the only road to something achieving success. Walling off the village wouldn't help, and I argued it and argued it. Well, my colonel didn't want to hear about this because his colonel liked the idea, and he wanted to get promoted. Uh. So I fought it, and I fought it, and I fought it. Interestingly, I won a semblance of a victory, which almost never happened to me in my time in Afghanistan. Uh, some of the civil affairs officers on the brigade staff did a little bit of a study based on what I said, and they did determine that, in fact, we would uh, literally dry out the village if we put concrete barriers. So I thought, wow, I actually won with a logical explanation. This never happens. It must be my lucky day. <laughs> I got a call later that same day and was told, we're not going to do concrete, but we're still going to wall off the village. But what we're going to do is we're going to surround it with thousands of pieces of triple-strand tri triple triple concertina wire, yes. which is a form of barbed wire, uh, about the height of a man. And uh, we are going to encapsulate this village uh, with barbed wire, which was uh, aesthetically uh demoralizing and Orwellian and inevitably looked a whole lot like the concentration camps during the Boer War or, dare I say, the other more famous concentration camps of historical memory. In, in terms of uh, the absurdity, that's the exact wording both my colonels used. Really? Because in Iraq, that's what David Petraeus and his lackeys referred to these communities as. So <laughs> instead of saying, hey, we're walling off these communities and it's really horrible what we have to do and it's, it's ugly and it's scary and it's really only a short-term solution, they said, no, these are gated communities, oh which goodness. to me was the most all-American euphemism of all time. I said, we, are we really going to compare these to the affluent <laughs> suburban McMansions of the United States? Because they don't look that way to me. <laughs> They tend to be rather homogeneous in the United States and don't have different uh, tribes within... Oh, my goodness, it's so different. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. This is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Denny Searson, former uh, U.S. Army officer. We're talking about where Afghanistan is today. Is, it po is there anything like a win possible? And let's jump ahead to... Uh, what's uh, the obvious story is Trump's recent amazing debacle. I mean, every day it's just something new. His on and off peace talks with the Taliban leadership in Camp David. I'm trying to figure out, was this guy smart enough to think that, no, he'll use some incident 
where some Americans get killed to say, oh, we can't have peace talks with the Taliban. Let's surge ahead with more troops and just keep going with the war. But that's just, I'm, I was never in the military. What's your sense? What the heck was that about? Well, this whole thing is, is absolutely wild. Um, starting with the fact that he announces this secret plan and how he's canceled it via Twitter, arguably the most important diplomatic, you know, uh, initiative in, in, you know, perhaps the 21st century, and he's announcing it over Twitter, which was just <laughs> fascinating, right? And a sign of our times. But look, I actually have a pretty provocative opinion about this. Bet. I think Donald Trump was absolutely correct over the last several months, that's how long it's been, to pursue some sort of deal with the Taliban that achieved a number of things, but I really only care about two, because um, I don't think the rest are realistic. The two things I care about that it, it seems, uh, according to open source reporting, that we're really promising, we were really close to a deal, was that we would pull out in a measured, gradual sense, and the Taliban would agree not to use Afghanistan as a harboring spot for transnational terror attacks on the United States. To me, that's a win, because that's the reason we went there. We didn't go there uh, initially to rebuild Afghanistan to do counterinsurgency. We went there to make sure it wasn't a haven for a 9-11-style attack. So to me, that's yes. a win, or the closest thing to a tie win that we could get. Uh-huh. He's, being, he's being attacked on all sides because he was considering two things. He was considering hosting not only the Afghan president, which is a big deal, uh, and members of the Taliban peace delegation at Camp David. He's being criticized for that. How dare you take terrorists to Camp David, apparently some sort of holy site. I don't really understand that. Yasser Arafat has been there, and my understanding is the United States considered him a terrorist. Uh, But okay, suddenly we're not allowed to have uh, people we don't like, right, or nefarious actors uh, on Camp David. I thought that when you make peace, you're generally doing it with an enemy. So, I mean, I don't understand the problem there. And, and the second problem that the media, and this is bipartisan, I mean, Republican representatives, I mean, Liz Cheney went nuts, yes. right? Um, Democrats went crazy because they're reflexively anti-Trump no matter what he does. Right. Um, they, they, they said, how dare he think about announcing a peace deal the same week as 9-11, how that's an insult to the firefighters who died and the innocent Americans in the towers and the Pentagon. To get even more provocative, I think it was totally appropriate to announce around that time, and I'll tell you why. It would have been a fitting bookend to the myth that has long since been debunked that the war in Afghanistan today has any connection any longer to the attacks of 9-11, because it does not. We are not fighting al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We are fighting Taliban farm boys who mostly joined the Taliban out of poverty, nationalism, or anti occupation, anti-Americanism, or some combination of the three. Mm -hmm. These are not existential threats to the United States. It has long since been completely disjointed, the war in Afghanistan has, from the September 11th attack. So I don't see why this is such a big deal. I think the fact that he's being attacked by both sides tells me that he might just have been onto something. Now, Trump does not deserve too much credit because ultimately he's lazy. He is... uh, intellectually uh, ill-fit, and he's uninformed. So he quickly flip-flops, gives in, changes his mind. He, do- he doesn't really stick with anything, even if his instincts are, rightfully, to get us out of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, the decision to, to spike the deal, right, or spike the negotiations, is his. So even if it was his ne- advisors and his generals and the media and the Republicans in Congress who were pushing it, and maybe they ultimately persuaded him, in the end, the buck stops with him. 
because whether it's for good or bad, I think it's for bad, the president is essentially a dictator in foreign policy uh, in America today. So it ultimately is his decision, and, and, and I think it was an awful one. And, and finally, his justification was ultimately insulting to me as a, as a veteran of the war. Because he said the reason he was spiking the talks, and I don't know if this is really the reason, but this was his justification, mm-hmm. was the Taliban conducted a bombing, which is what they do every day, and an American soldier happened to die, another American soldier. Well, by spiking the deal, he is ensuring that a countless number maybe dozens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands, more American soldiers will now die in that just, you know, unjustified, needless war than before. So how is he honoring the death of this one sergeant first class by ensuring more of his brothers and sisters in arms will now die in Afghanistan that is undeniable in the future? It's, it's so hard to figure. I wonder how the, the military brass, A, do they know about this planned secret deal, and B... What do they think now, now that he spiked it? Well, you said the brass, and so I'm going to... Yeah, there's two. Yeah, I'm going to take that to mean the general officer corps, especially the senior generals, and I think that's what it does mean in common parlance. Yeah, These folks have opposed any withdrawal from Afghanistan. Just look at their public statements. I'm talking the Central Command commander, the commander on the ground in Afghanistan, Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Every senior four-star officer has gone on the record when asked or without being asked to say that they oppose withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. In fact, in a particularly interesting piece of absurdity, Joe Dunford, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said a few weeks back, okay, so we're talking in August now, uh, he says it is premature to talk about pulling soldiers out of Afghanistan. Premature. Doesn't that redefine the very term premature? (laughs) If 18 years yeah. is premature, what does premature does premature maintain any meaning in the classical sense? If we twist it that far, it's it's really brilliant. It's a brilliant uh, move uh, in, in terms of linguistics. Uh, Chomsky would have a field day. Oh, yes, but you know, it, it's ludicrous. So the generals have been against it from the start. If the generals knew about the secret deal, I don't know. Yeah. If I was Trump, I would have kept it from them until the last minute. Yeah. Um, if they knew about it, they obviously opposed it. And reports yeah. from a number of news organizations, if you can trust them, state that just about everyone from Vice President Pence on down through the civilian national security structure, on down to the senior generals on the Joint Chiefs, all oppose this Camp David plan. So that tells you how, you know, invested these generals are wow. in the tired, old, discredited thinking that the Uni- if the United States just stays a little longer, stays the course, keeps a few thousand extra troops there, somehow will reach some version of, quote, victory. And, of course, they've been proven wrong time and again. It is absolute insanity, as Einstein apocryphally may have said. It is insanity to try the same thing over and over again after it fails and continue to do the same thing. (laughs) I'm amazed at that. I mean, did they just... I mean, certainly war is very profitable for the weapons contractors, but these, the, the commanders, the brass, as, as we say, is there are people, people's lives, Americans' lives are, are underneath them. You know, I can see the, the weapons contractors being motivated to keep it going, but why would they be? I, I, I don't understand that. I have some theories, mainly one, and this is controversial. The senior brass, the three and four-star generals of today, were already majors, lieutenant colonels, 
at the time that the, quote, war on terror began. Most of these individuals have never killed anyone. Most of these individuals have uh, never really been in a direct firefight. Uh, um, that doesn't make them bad people. I right. think it, the military would be better off if almost no one had ever been in a firefight, because it should only be used in the most drastic national defense circumstances. But this is the reality. That being said, they also have spent their entire senior officer careers, from the rank of major on up, invested in these wars. Their whole careers, their promotions, their whole sense of what the Army and the Marines is for have been, you know, completely dominated by the wars on terror, right? The counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan, the counterterrorism or whatever you want to call it in Syria and Libya. I mean, they don't know anything else. And the military positively reinforces more of the same thinking. You know, creative thinkers are quickly marginalized and usually retire as full colonels at best. And I can name several examples of this. Right? There are very few dissenting generals. Here's uh, an exercise in that. Both MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News have their own slew of generals who are national security reporters, right? national right. security analysts. They're all retired generals. Right. Name one who is a uh, consistently anti-war voice. There isn't a single one. Now, there are many retired colonels and some majors who are mostly on alternative media, because we don't get, right, we don't get on CNN, uh, and that's instructive, mm -hmm. who are against these wars. But they're all colonels and below. Now, that tells you something about the general officer class and how they view these wars. So, if I'm hearing you right, it seems like uh, career progression, promotion, is... I mean, Trump's, pardon the word, uh, actual winning of wars and saving of lives and having a good strategy for a lot of these people, it's about uh, promoting their careers, which I suppose I can sort of understand. But, ooh, that's kind of uh, ghoulish, actually. Oh. It, it is. And, you know, there's been a couple of exceptions. I'll, I'll mention a guy that I think deserves a, a, a fair amount of credit. I, I think he and I would disagree about many aspects of U.S. foreign policy, but he deserves some credit, and that's the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under Obama, the late Obama years, Martin Dempsey. Uh -huh. Martin Dempsey is an interesting guy. Um, he uh, was a cavalry uh, reconnaissance officer, same job as me. Um, he uh, He's a very good singer. He likes to uh, jump on top of tables and, and uh, perform limericks and uh, sing songs at parties. He's a really interesting personality. He taught English literature at West Point when he was a major, just like I taught history. When he became chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, just like he had as a division commander, and he personally had seen very little combat because he was pretty senior by the time the Iraq War started, he would carry um, like baseball cards of all the soldiers that had died under his command, ah. their faces and something about oh. them. And he would, uh, he would go through them every night. And, oh, and, and, and that's the story he would tell. And actually, it, I think the story first broke, someone else mentioned it about him. He didn't publicize it. Uh -huh. Now, Dempsey, when that's he becomes chairman of the Joint Chiefs, becomes as close as a senior military officer has come to an opponent of an American intervention, specifically the intervention in Syria. Um, he didn't say no to Obama, but when he was put in front of the Armed Services Committees, the Foreign Affairs Committees, he regularly expressed 90% of his testimony doubts as to why this wouldn't work and wouldn't be smart, and only 10% to how it could potentially be done. And so I think that's a rare exception of a guy who, while not as outspoken as I would have liked him to be mm -hmm. so late in his career mm -hmm. when he had nothing to lose, mm -hmm. did 
uh, fight vehemently against boots on the ground in Syria. And, and, and to his credit, he did delay it for quite some time, although he ultimately failed. Well, that uh, idea of like the baseball cards, that, that's pretty impressive to think about, you know, the actual lives and the families of these people. It'd be nice if Moore uh, did that. Now, we talked a little bit about, you know, the upper echelons. What about uh, your, your fellow former soldiers or uh, other, you know, lower rank people in the Pentagon? I wonder what they think of, A, the leadership of this president relative to the war in Afghanistan and, and the policy in general. What, what do you hear? I mean, people want to be patriotic. They go into service for patriotic purposes. What, what do you hear? So uh, there's two ways I can go at this. Uh, one is a personal experience, and so in this sense, uh, I'm only speaking about um, the people I know, sure. but I do know hundreds uh, still in uniform or previously in uniform. And the second way I can go at this is from uh, recent polling data, which has been uh, actually widely reported. Uh, we'll start with the um, empirical stuff. So um, I've been sharing on social media regularly a number of different polls that have shown that a, uh, a majority, actually a supermajority, uh, close to two-thirds, of Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, both on active duty and uh, now out of service, have said that the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were, quote, not worth it. Okay? Um, that's a profound thing in an organization that to this day remains uh, the following things, statistically. Um, the, the average military man or woman, to this day, is uh, more politically conservative, yes. more rural, and more southern-slash-mountain-western than the American population at large. So for people of that demographic to have turned two-thirds against the notion that these wars were worth it is, is profound. Wow. The second thing I will tell you is um, my own experience. What am I hearing through the grapevine? What am I hearing through my vast network of friends and, and, and colleagues, both in and out of uniform? Most of my colleagues are senior majors now, those who are still in. They are mostly second-in-command of battalions, which is about 500 folks, and uh, not a one of them, maybe this reflects to some extent the people that I pal around with, but not a one of them really has any belief that there's any hope for victory in Afghanistan, many of whom are actually either there or on their way there, and, and they don't even go there with any optimism anymore. They look at it like a job. It's a profession. Mm. It's just, why am I in Afghanistan? Well, I'm in Afghanistan because my job is the Army. It's the same, you know, why am I in uh, the South Bronx. Well, I'm a New York City police officer. You know, I mean, it, it's, it becomes a job. And, and that's really distressing to a certain <laughs> extent when the mid-range officers, the actual middle, middle managers, the ones who really run the war, right? Mm -hmm. The ones who touch soldiers and hear soldiers uh -huh. and smell soldiers. These guys, these guys don't hold out any hope for anything resembling victory anymore. They, they would laugh. Most of the people that I hear from would laugh if you said, well, define victory. They would, they would giggle before right. they tried to explain that there's no such thing. I was going to ask that question. You just answered it. Is you know, if there was any possibility of anything like a win, and you know, Vietnam kept dragging on and on and on and on because, you know, Johnson didn't want to be the first president to lose a war, saving face. But I tell you, I think if Trump was able to pull troops out, and believe me, I am very much against Trump. He, you know, maybe he could do it. I think it'd, it'd be sort of a heroic thing to do is to, to pull out. Because if we can't possibly win, you know, if there's some kind of arrangement that can be made with the, the Taliban, you know, go for it. What the heck? I, I, it's just my feeling. I mean, how many? I don't even know how many Americans have died in Afghanistan, but I bet you do. Yeah, it's upwards of 2,700 at this point. Uh -huh. um, 
have died in Afghanistan. And, uh, and, and the vast majority of those died between 2009 and 2012 during Obama's surge. So that must be oh. remembered when we sort of um, uh-huh. canonize Obama, right? Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, this, this whole notion that nobody wants to be the first to lose an American war is, is, is just it's sickening because oh, yeah. n- not losing is not the same as winning. So these generals, uh, and, and especially these presidents, they keep kicking the can down the road to someone else's responsibility because <laughs> they don't want to be the one to lose. And so what they do is they just, you know, they, they just don't lose. They don't win. They don't think they can win. I mean, right. I don't think that really any of the presidents really, maybe Bush did at first because, you know, God told him. But the, uh, the next two didn't really think they could win. I, I mean, that's the cynicism of Obama, and that's, I think, ultimately the uh, sense of Trump is that they don't think they can really win. Right. But um, they don't want to be the first to lose, so they just go on not losing indefinitely. But I'll tell you who does lose is the soldiers who make $30,000 a year to die yes. in uh, Afghanistan. They lose, and they don't profit, right? They're not in the arms industry. They don't own stocks. They can't afford a $400 emergency like a broke-down car or an emergency surgery, okay? They, they go bankrupt, okay? These are American soldiers, some of whom are on food stamps, by the way, yeah. this day. So this is the point. Uh, it, it is it, the only hope we had, and I am just sick to have to say this, because I, too, find the president abhorrent on 97% of all the things he does and believes. Yep. The only hope we had in this moment was Donald Trump and the um, peace plan or the peace talks that he was in, engaging in. That was our only way out. I've said before, it pains me to say this, but if only Nixon could go to China, right, and open up relations because he was such a known cold warrior, right. maybe only Trump can go to Kabul, right, or, or have them come to Camp David because he's known as such a tough guy. And not just that. Look, a bipartisan array of both corporate media and political mainstream politicians are against Trump's plan to pull out. They've been against it from the start. I mean, Mattis huh. resigned over this, okay? This was too much for him to pull out of Syria and, and reduce modestly the troops in Afghanistan. But I'll tell you who's with Trump people his people like he famously said would be with him yes even if he shot someone on fifth avenue yeah and i believe that so these people who are normally hawkish normally maybe a little more conservative if trump said you know what i'm against the war now we're getting out i believe they'd follow him they'd follow him to hell and the progressive left may not like it but ultimately <laughs> would agree with that decision so Definitely. one could argue that perhaps two-thirds of Americans, depending on polling data, would support Trump pulling troops out of Afghanistan. The only ones who don't are the players, so to speak, mm-hmm. the insiders mm-hmm. in the national security state, and that includes both the media and the politicians. Trump likes to win. He's all about winning. I, I would think, I mean, I don't understand how his brain works, that's for sure, but I would think if he wants to look like a winner, there you go, pal. You know, just pull out the troops from, from uh, Afghanistan. People would love him. I mean, as you say, he's he's the only one talking about it. I don't know if any Democratic candidates are president. I mean, I suppose there must be some of them. Uh, in fact, Tulsi Gabbard. Tulsi Gabbard is. Yeah, she's speaking about it more than probably anybody else. I think some of the others would go along with that. But she's making it an issue. And I wish the heck. I personally think if more Democrats would talk about peace and ending wars, there's a large group of people that would get behind that and be motivated by that. We're talking about Afghanistan here uh, on, uh, in, in the wake of uh, Trump's alleged trying to, uh, to bring some peace talks with uh, our guest today is uh, retired U.S. Army officer Danny Sherson. 
who uh, has written a, a book, a critical analysis of the Iraq War, Ghost Riders of Baghdad, Soldiers, Civilians, and the Myth of the Surge. Boy, we're talking about a lot of myths here. And I just find it, I don't know much about Afghani history, but Churchill, Winston Churchill, is alleged to have called Afghanistan the graveyards of empires. The British had called, and the Russians had a long fight over it. They called it the Great Game. It lasted about 100 years or so. The Russians occupied it in the 80s and got their backsides handed to them. It seems like the writing is on the wall, that there are these you know, uh, tribes, sub-tribes, warlords, no real central authority. There's no real history of central authority. Th- that's still the case, is it not? Yeah, that's the profound and the um, prevailing consistency of Afghanistan has been decentralized rule. Um, anytime there's been a remotely successful government in Kabul or Kandahar, which was previously the capital uh, hundreds of years ago, um, usually any success that a central government, in, in most cases a dynasty or, or kingship, was they allowed the provinces to run themselves. Okay, So they had uh, some authority some minimal taxation, some control over foreign policy, but overall let the provinces run themselves. The, oh. the, the uh-huh. problem with the American Kabul-based regime, and the same problem with the Soviet Kabul-based regime before it, was that uh, it attempted an American sort of federal model, right, uh-huh. um, where uh-huh. the centralized government has an extraordinary amount of control. I mean, if you look at their constitution, if you look at the organization of it, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's far too similar to the American uh, well, we can't just Plan, slap that on. Never going to work in Afghanistan, right? But we—that's what we do. We, you know, we as Americans uh, have this sense that inside every Afghan and inside every brown person in the greater Middle East, there's a secret American waiting to unzip itself and jump out. But that just hasn't proven to be the case. <laughs> and you know, instead of crafting oh, a government geez. based on the context on the ground and on the context oh, of goodness. Afghan history, we attempted something else, and of course, it's failed, and it failed for. The Soviets and it failed for the British before them. And when he was a lowly lieutenant, a guy named Winston Churchill, right, serving in the mountains on the border between what is today Pakistan and Afghanistan, was writing a journal, um, you know, decrying these same problems and these same challenges that Lieutenant, you know, Smith today, or then Captain Shorts and myself, was decrying at the same time. And we don't learn from history. And um, the reality is, in a uh, hundred years, Afghanistan is likely to still be a very rural country that is run effectively. The only way it's run effectively is through decentralized uh, rule, and we've we've never seemed to learn that lesson. And we have tried to apply American solutions to Afghan problems. It didn't go well in Iraq, and it won't go well anywhere between Morocco and Central Asia, uh, if you want my predictions. And so far, the evidence is with me, Bert. So it is, but as I've said many times, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. What happens when we pull out? I don't know when that's going to be, next week or 10 years from now. Is a bloodbath likely, do you think? Would it threaten the population of Afghanistan if we just uh, got the heck out of there? Well, it's going to be messy. I mean, it's going to be ugly, it's going to be bloody, but it's, it's messy and it's bloody and it's ugly now. And you know, I would argue that whether we stay a day or uh, another century, uh, we're not going to meaningfully change the outcome. If I'm in the prediction business, which is a dangerous business, I'll oh, say this. Um, upon the withdrawal of American troops, which will happen eventually, there are two possibilities. One slightly more likely than the other um, over the course of the long term. Possibility one uh, is uh, what I think is more likely, which is within one to three years, the Taliban occupies the vast majority of the country, if not the whole thing, 
definitely takes Kabul, either hangs Ashraf Ghani or more, like I did Najibullah in uh, the 90s, more likely Ashraf Ghani comes back to the United States on right. a plane, the last plane out of Kabul. And there's a small resistance among the Tajik and uh, Uzbek minority in the north. So essentially what that means is that uh, Afghanistan looks a lot like it did in 2001, in August August yeah. of 2001, right? With 90% of the country under Taliban control, medieval sort of uh, Sharia law, slavery essentially for women, um, which is already the case in, you know, the, right. the half the country that the Taliban is already uh, contesting or in control of. And then the second more optimistic possibility is that the Kabul-based regime, with its relatively large army and police force, uh, once trained and equipped by the Americans, is able to hold on to the uh, north and the west of the country, where most of the ethnic minorities, specifically the Tajiks, Uzbeks, and Hazara, none of whom are particularly uh, fond of the Taliban. Uh, and then essentially what happens is there's a long-term civil war that reaches a point of stalemate and stasis, and Afghanistan effect- uh, effectively fractures into two de facto entities a Taliban-controlled South and East, and a government-controlled North and West. Um, it's a little more complicated than that, but those are the vague, you know, broad strokes of what it would look like geographically. In a sense, what that would do, of course, is just legitimize what is already the situation on the ground, which is basically that the Americans and the American-backed Kabul regime controls the North and the West, and the Taliban contests or controls the South and the East. So it really wouldn't look a whole lot different than what's happening now. There's going to be Americans there. So those are the two possibilities. I don't know how long Kabul holds on for. Uh, I don't mean to sound unsympathetic to the plight of the Afghan people, especially the women, but um, I don't think the United States uh, ever went to war for human rights in the first place. So it's, you know, it's not fair to act like that was cause us belly in the first place, but I, I think the reality is the United States can't alter that outcome. The only question is how many Americans die, and of course how many Amer- uh, civilians die under American airstrikes, because mm-hmm. the latest report shows that in 2019 and in 2018, the United States and uh, our allies in Kabul actually killed more civilians than the Taliban for the first time. Ever. Oh my so, goodness. You know, the only difference here is not a question of what happens when we leave, it's a question of how many Americans and then Afghan civilians die uh, as long as we stay. Oh, lovely. Well, if people want to read more of your stuff, I guess uh, the place, best place they can go is antiwar.com? Yeah, so I have weekly columns at antiwar.com and TruthDig. I'm all over the Internet. Check me out at the, the Hill, Tom Dispatch, sometimes the L.A. Times. Key thing to do, Google me and spell it right. That's the biggest challenge, Bert. S-J-U-R-S-E-N. I try to be pretty prolific, and uh, I'll be fighting the good fight. You are amazingly prolific. I have to give you that. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. A familiar theme. It was back in 1942, I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee-deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. The sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I forded this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging, we'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. The sergeant said, sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Sergeant, don't be a nervous Nelly, the captain said to him. All we need is a little 
Determination men, follow me, I'll lead on. We were neck deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on.